Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome back after a summer break to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. As usual, I'm Stephen Porzio. As always, I'm Andrew Carroll. And today we are talking about Papa Midnight himself, Jaiman Honzu. Andrew, run down his history. There's someone, there's, maybe we should have watched Constantine. Well, we did it already, didn't that's we? True. Yeah, we did. For yeah, Swinton. Yeah. Mm, very true. But that's actually one of his better characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. With better names as well. Pop Absolutely. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. There's some of the character names in Blood Diamond are really great. Captain Poison. Captain Poison, yeah. Commander Cap- Zero. Commander Zero, yeah. Ram- Captain, Captain Rambo. Rambo. Yeah. I love your movies. <laughs> uh, so, Juman Hunsu was born in Benin in 1964. He emigrated to Paris at 12 years old. And in 1987, a chance meeting with a fo- photographer led to Hunsu meeting fashion mogul Thierry Mugler, who encouraged him to start modelling. From there, Hunsu's striking good looks, imposing physique and intense gaze put him on the fast track. He moved to the US in 1990 and had his film debut in the same year in Without You, I'm Nothing, as well as appearing in several music videos. Critical acclaim, a Golden Globe, nod and fame came with his role of Joseph Sinke in the Steven Spielberg picture Amistad about the revolt on the slave ship of the same name. He went on to play Juba, best friend of Russell Crowe's Maximus Decimus Meridius, in Ridley Scott's box office smash Gladiator. He was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in 2004 for Jim Sheridan's In America. He was nominated a second time for the same award in 2006 for Edwards Vick's Blood Diamond. Hunsu has made a career out of playing authoritative and commanding roles in the likes of Michael Bay's The Island, Never Back Down, The Legend of Tarzan, A Quiet Place Part 2, Guardians of the Galaxy and Shazam! In 2018, Honsu wrote, directed and produced the documentary In Search of Voodoo, Roots to Heaven, in his native Benin. He will reprise his role as Juba in Gladiator 2 alongside Paul Meskel, Denzel Washington, Connie Nielsen and Pedro Pascal. Other upcoming roles include Zack Schneider's Rebel Moon, the prequel A Quiet Place Day One and the survival thriller Last Breath. Not Barry Keown in um, no, Gladiator no, 2. No, sure, you know what? Fred Heshinger. Yeah, I remember seeing a tweet when um, the casting was being announced uh, the first time and um, someone was like, typical Englishman pitting two Irish kings against each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, on um, Hanzu, um, a wonderful career, I'll say, off the bat. Mm. Two Oscar nominations, worked with a bunch of legendary directors, been a part of so many franchises. He's done Marvel movies, he's done DC movies, he's part of the A Quiet Place universe. Yeah. He's done a Fast and Furious, a Kingsman. He's in the Gran Turismo movie in theaters now, and is part of Zack Snyder's Netflix space opera, Rebel Moon, coming out later this year. So, been like a consistent presence in mainstream movies since the mid 90s. Mm. That said, for someone who has been in as many big movies as he has, it is very odd to me that outside of Amistad and Blood Diamond, he's never been given a starring or like co-starring role in a mainstream film. It's very true, yeah. And um, I wanted to put this theory to you. Um, I said this to you kind of off mic, but is Hanzu the actor who has made the most out of the least material? <laughs> Probably, yeah. I've never seen a man make, make so many full meals out of scraps before. Yeah, because it, it's not just that he like plays a lot of supporting characters. Like I would say in like three of the four movies I watched... Hanzu in for this so, so Gladiator in America and the island but also like in Guardians of the Galaxy or Black Adam or the first Shazam I would describe his characters as very underdeveloped and I think because of the combination of his distinct deep voice his incredible ability to muster up this well of emotion out of nowhere and also as you mentioned like his striking like model looks like he always leaves a big impression mm. but like for like an example of this, like in Guardians of the Galaxy, he plays like the tenth, eleventh, twelfth most important character, like this henchman for the villain. But um, I do think the most iconic and important scene in the movie, from like a tone setting perspective, is when Peter Quill, you know, Chris Pratt's hero, is like captured by Hanzu's character, and Hanzu is like, "I've never heard of you," and Quill says, "You may know me by another name, Star Lord." And the camera zooms in, like that's like some badass name drop, like I'm Batman, and Hanzu just goes, "Who?" <laughs> and like I think that line delivery really helps cement the irreverent tone <laughs> of those <laughs> movies, and you know. Um, it's why he gets invited back to be in the prequel Captain Marvel where he gets even less to do (laughs) and similarly like Shazam very limited role in the first movie 
and yet is also sort of like the Phil Coulson of that DC magic universe where mm. he's in Black Adam and yeah, also is given yeah. a bigger role than Shazam 2 and um, I haven't seen Shazam sorry Shazam but I have seen Black Adam and uh, that movie is not good it was uh, poor I would say very poor yeah, poor poor um, putting it lightly grating grating <laughs> I would say but um there's this amazing Guardian profile of Hanzu that was done while he was promoting Shazam Fear of the Gods where he said he's been frustrated with the limited parts uh, black actors are after, offered in Hollywood and that he feels that he is undervalued in Hollywood particularly for someone who's been Oscar nominated twice and he said and I quote I'm still struggling to try and make a dollar I've come up in the business with some people who are tremendously well off and have very little of my accolades so I feel cheated tremendously cheated in terms of finances and in terms of the workload as well I've gone to studios for meetings and they're like wow we felt like you just got off the boat and then went back after Amistad we didn't know you were here as a true actor when you hear things like that you can see that some people's vision of you or what you represent is very limiting but it is what it is it's up to me to redeem that and then he also said I still have to prove why I need to get paid they always come at me with a complete low ball we only have this much for the role but we love you so much and we really think you can bring so much and he quotes the patron saint of our podcast he adds Viola Davis said it beautifully she's won an Oscar she's won an Emmy she's won a Tony and she still can't get paid film after film it's a struggle I have yet to meet the film that paid me fairly hey it's a struggle I have to overcome so very enough, yeah. interesting yeah, yeah. and I, I think um he definitely deserves to have more shots and more lead roles. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, will we start off talking about Gladiator? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I have the pop of this. Mm-hmm. In 180 AD, all the Roman general Maximus, Pepe Russell Crowe, wants to do after leading his army to victory against the Germanic tribes is to live in peace on a Spanish farm with his family. However, consumed with jealousy over his emperor father's admiration for Maximus, the villainous Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, murders his father, played by Richard Harris, so that he himself can become emperor. He subsequently has Maximus's family killed and tries to have Maximus killed. However, Maximus escapes injured, eventually being found unconscious by a slave trader who sells him to Proximo, played by Oliver Reed, a man who buys slaves and trains him to fight to the death as gladiators for spectators entertainment. Realizing that these gladiator tournaments could be a way to get close enough to Emperor Commodus to kill him, Maximus, with the help of his fellow slaves, including Juba, played by Jamin Hunzu, aims to become the greatest gladiator. My home. My wife is preparing food. My daughters carry water from the river. Will I ever see them again? I think no. Do you believe you'll see them again when you die? I think so. But then, I will die soon. They will not die for many years. I'll have to wait. But you would wait? Of course. You see, my wife and my son are already waiting for me. You'll meet them again. I don't want to put you like on blast or anything, Andrew, but um, I recently spotted you in the wild at an event. Yeah. Uh, we were checking in with the big boy, Godzilla, of at course. the IFI. Yeah. And they were showing the original 50s movie. And I asked after, like, do you want to hang out? And you were like, nah, I've got plans to go home and watch Kingdom of Heaven, which was totally cool yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And then we did end up hanging out a couple of weeks later. And you were like, yo, rips, the last duel. And I bring this up. Because Gladiator was such a critical and commercial and like Oscar hit, like it won Best Picture and Best Actor for Crow. And I feel that in the years since Gladiator came out, a lot of historical action epics, a genre that was like not considered popular at that time, Mm -hmm. were greenlit. Yeah. So examples of this, like Alexander, Troy, 300, The Last Samurai. And then also Ridley Scott made himself like a bunch more, like Kingdom of Heaven, his gritty Robin Hood movie, Exodus, Gods and Kings, I'd put in that bracket. The Last Duel, and now both Napoleon reteaming him with Phoenix mm-hmm. from Gladiator. And I must say, it looks pretty good. Yeah. And Gladiator 2 itself, starring our own Paul, Me- Paul-, Paul Mescal. And, um, like the Mexican liquor? Yeah. Mezcal? That's what the, way, the way they say it. Mescal. Really? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Mescal. But um, out of all those previous movies, some of which are pretty good and were hits, but I think none have reached the heights of Gladiator. Of all of them, maybe The Revenant was the closest yeah. it was kind of similar vibe but um, I was curious as someone who seems like they've watched a bunch more of these movies than I have what do you think it is about Gladiator that makes us stand out because I, I have kind of like two theories on it detail mm. but like not historical detail just, character detail yeah character detail and just commitment to like 
like if you want history, historical accuracy, go read a textbook. Yes. You know? Um, but if you want like fun sword and sandal fantasy sort of epic adventure, then you go to Gladiator. You go to the movies. You know, I want to see, I'm not there for a lesson. Or to be lectured. I'm there to watch Russell Crowe commit wholesale butchery on a guy <laughs> on a bunch of guys in weird helmets. Uh, that's what I'm there for, you know. Um, and much in the same way, I'm there. I'm watching Kingdom of Heaven, not for Orlando Bloom, but for ever, uh, all the rest of the class to commit wholesale butchery on each other. Uh, to see Edward Norton in an iron mask with leprosy, yeah. Um, and just in the same way that I'm there for that I'm watching The Last Duel for Ben Affleck and Adam Driver and, and well to be honest the whole main cast I'm not there for historical accuracy I'm there for The Last Duel mm. and what a last duel it is need to yeah. see it much like Gladiator which also is a great last duel I would say all the duels in Gladiator are pretty amazing much like all the duels in The Duelists <laughs> and The Duelists yeah, he's great for duels is Ridley Scott now I will say uh, I like this movie, but the, <laughs> once that first battle is over, the politics politics of, of all the ancient Roman shite just slow it down so much. Disagree. Before, before the uh, before the actual. <laughs> all right, well, go watch the History Channel. <laughs> before, before the but once the actual gladiatorial combat starts, I'm like locked in. Um, and you really you do really get the sense that these are the kind of films that really Scott likes making. Um, like at least three of the best films of his career are historical war epics um, but only one has a gladiators cast it's true yeah no I did a little digging on this Um, you often hear about like gladiator having a notoriously troubled production so Mm. I really went in deep and like what was the deal was I actually feel like it might have helped Jaiman Hunzu in the movie like his character Mm. but basically I think sometimes in a movie when you have a very troubled production it leads to something sort of alchemic like you sort of catch lightning in a bottle and maybe these raw moments you probably couldn't have pre-planned ahead of time so I'm like I'm thinking of like Apocalypse Now and like Fitzcarraldo in that respect and while I don't think Gladiator's production problems were on the level of those two movies like it was pretty infamous like one of its leads Oliver Reed died (laughs) while the movie was being made (laughs) and they had to have like a digital body double of him made up and like give the character like a different conclusion Mm. and um, I must say you would not know Um, the Reed stuff in this movie feels very flawless Um, but like Russell Crowe told inside the actor's studio that Ridley Scott began shooting with only 32 pages and the movie is two and a half hours long and I (laughs) I think yeah with screenplays it's usually a page a minute maybe less when there's like big action scenes like there are in this movie but Mm. um, still and I feel like there was this also like a big worry about making sure Maximus was sympathetic despite how many people he kills in the movie. Well, it's like, just the, watch John Wick. You know? he's, the hus- <laughs> he's the husband to a murdered wife, a father exactly. to a murdered son, commander of the exactly. nations of the North. How is that not sympathetic? Anyway. And Crow has said like, I have to, there's this crazy quote from Crow where he's like, we, you, we had, um, I think, one American writer working on it, one English writer working on it, and of course a group of producers who are also adding in their ideas. And then on occasion, Ridley would say, like, look at the structure of the scene. What are you going to say in that? So <laughs> I'd be doing my own stuff as well. And this is how, like, things like Strength and Honor came up. This is how things like, at my signal, unleash hell came up, you know? The name Maximus Decimus Meridius, it just flowed well, you know? Very true, yeah, because I was reading that it's not like a real name or like it would have been in reverse order basically if it was actually an actual Roman name. Yeah, the name, it was going to be Narcissus, which oh, is right. the real yeah, guy yeah, who yeah. killed Commodus and he mm. was a bit like, I don't really like that. Yeah, it's a bit of a crap name. Yeah. yeah. Um, and apparently like Maximus rubbing the dirt into his hands before battle was improvised. Also, Crow has said that the recurring motifs of the figurines that he prays to that represent his family, that was made up on the spot too and then carried over throughout the rest of the movie. And you're thinking to yourself, this is all the best bits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. These are really the core tenets of the movie. Um, Do they just go to the prop department and ask someone to whittle? Apparently, it was like... Like a couple of little figurines? There was some art desk person who had like left them out and he was like, I, I like this. Oh, okay. I take. Fair enough. Um, I don't know why I'm doing his voice. <laughs> Russell Crowe. His, his voice from the, from the Pope's exorcist. <laughs> yes, exactly. Honorary. Do you think the movie would be better or worse if he spoke in his Italian accent for Gladiator? I think it might have been better because he's amazing okay. in the Pope's yeah. exorcism. <laughs> yeah, that's and true. And I'm making him honorary Italian yeah. as, as an Italian yeah, myself. But um, he's also, they keep calling him the Spaniard because it was meant to be Antonio. They wanted Antonio Banderas to play the role. Oh, okay. But um, I think though, Ridley Scott and co are able to get away with these sort of hijinks mm. on Gladiator because I think the structure like the bones of the movie are really strong because to me what's great about Gladiator is that yes it's it's really amazing seeing like ancient Rome being brought to life on screen and to like learn about Gladiators but it's really like a straightforward revenge movie mm. 
and also kind of a sports movie yeah that's true wrapped yeah. up in costume drama veneer and um, I think if you didn't know any of these production problems you'd be like well everything is clearly well yeah. thought out <laughs> from the jump you know but um, the character of Juba what do, what do you think of him I think it's obviously it's relatively small um, sure. maybe by virtue of the script or not three um, or four scenes maybe of extended dialogue yeah, yeah. Um, I think but the, but those scenes are some of the most impactful of the film um, I think for all the films like posturing and power violence and politics it's most poignant moments come from Juba who is sort of desperate to return to a life he knows he's all, he's basically almost certain that he thinks he's long gone or uh, won't be able to return to and as we see in Gladiator 2 that might be true because uh, he's back in it but every conversation he has with Maximus seems to restore a little bit of humanity in the like beaten down former general and he's a reminder to Maximus that even if his own life is empty the lives of others aren't and that's what he should be fighting for Mm, yeah, I agree. And he gets the last lines of the movie. Yeah, it's, he's burying the little wooden figurines. I've got important information, but now I'm reading between the lines here a little right. bit. But yeah. um, yeah, as you meant, like Juba's this like fellow slave and is basically the person who nurses back to health Maximus after he's stabbed. He cleans out his wounds and he says like, "Don't die. They'll feed you to the lions. They're worth more than we are." Just <laughs> great intro line. Yeah. But um, and when Maximus survives, like he's like a husk. Like his his family have been killed. He was betrayed by the people he fought for. It, it seems like he's got no more fight in him. Mm. And if you don't, you're likely to die in the gladiator ring. If yeah. you don't, if you don't want to fight, yeah. um, and you sort of feel Juba always like checking in on him. There, there's the bit where he walks in on Maximus and he's like cutting part of the skin off on his arm where he has like a Roman tattoo. And Juba says like, "Is that a sign of your gods?" And Crow does this sort of sad laugh. And Juba says, "Would that not anger them?" And then Crow just does the same laugh. I mean, he looks <laughs> genuinely like insane. Yeah, <laughs> and. But then, like, I think once Maximus is in the ring, it's like the, the soldier reflexes kick in and he and Juba, like, team up to, like, take down their attackers mm. and all the gladiatorial scenes are really exciting. Crow and Hanzu both seem really formidable. And then they're sort of best buds. Yeah. And while the rest of the gladiators look up to Maximus the same way, like, his soldiers did when he was a general at the yeah. beginning of the movie, it seems like he and Juba are, like, particularly close because there's that beautiful scene where they're sitting in the desert sun and Juba's talking about his family who are alive but far away. And he says that, like, he believes he'll see them in the afterlife, but because he's probably going to die soon, he'll have to wait a long time in the afterlife for mm. them to join him, but that he's prepared to do that. And Maximus says, you know, something like, my wife and son are already waiting for me there. And Juba says, you'll meet them again, but not yet. And Maximus says, not yet. And it's Maximus kind of saying to Juba and the audience, like, once I avenge them, like, I'm cool with dying. Mm, yeah. Um, and it's the movie sort of reinforcing this spiritual idea that, this life maybe is not the end. Uh, so it's a very key scene. And I think Crow and Hanzu have really good chemistry. And I think Hanzu's natural warmth and that the sympathy, but also like the pragmatism his character displays in the face of such dire circumstances mm. is important so that the movie never feels too miserablest or nihilistic. And um, I read on IMDb that it was supposed to be Proximo in that final scene. Okay. But obviously Alvary died. Yeah. So it was rewritten to be Juba. And I imagine that's because Ridley Scott's watching the dailies and is like, Hanzu's killing it. The guy's, guy's so magnetic. Juice, yeah. And the guy who conceived the story for Gladiator, David Franzoni, wrote Amistad. Okay. So he's probably yeah. like, that guy's the real deal. Mm. And I, I actually think the way the finished movie wraps up both Proximo's story and Juba's story is way more fitting. Yeah. Like yeah. the bit with Juba at the end is, is so uplifting. You're really like, yeah, man. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, where he's just like, see you soon, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, uh, yeah and I'm yeah, so happy he's going to be back. Yeah. Gladiator 2. Yeah, One of the only few. Years later. Yeah. It'll be him, Connie Nielsen, Derek Jacobi. Yeah. Yeah. My, fa my favorite <laughs> My guys. favorite people. <laughs> my beautiful boys. Um, can I talk about In America? Go for it. Yeah. yeah Wake so, me when you're done. Oh, Andrew, don't do this bit. <laughs> this is a uh, 2002 drama directed by uh, Jim Sheridan, best known for his... Um, trilogy of movies he made with Danny Day-Lewis in the 80s and 90s My Left Foot in the Name of the Father the Boxer it tells the story of Johnny and Sarah Sullivan played by Patty Considine and Samantha Morton an Irish married couple who moved to New York with their young daughters Christy and Ariel in the 80s following the death of their son Frankie the central family face a lot of uh, struggles as these strangers in a new land there is obviously kind of lingering grief over Frankie's death but also the Hell's Kitchen tenement they live in is really run down the parents don't have much money the girls miss home however one thing that helps the family adjust to life in America is the strong friendship the parents and the kids develop with Matteo played by Hanzu an artist and photographer from Nigeria who lives in their building do you want to be me? do you want to be in my place? I wish In love with her. 
How are you gonna open her? No. I'm in love with you. And I'm in love with your beautiful woman. And I'm in love with your kids. And I'm even in love with your unborn child. I'm even in love with your anger. I'm in love with anything that lives. This is a very beautiful movie. I think like Sharon's best work, it's quite a simple story that is nevertheless immensely powerful because he just makes it very easy for the viewer to imagine themselves in the character's shoes and because the environments he shoots in have a great sense of place with an emphasis on like particular details that added to that, the lived-in feel and also just because of the emotional rawness of the performances. Like most listicles that are like best Irish accents on screen by non-Irish actors <laughs> will rank Constantine and Morton very high but they're also like just incredible actors mm. in general and um, it's worth knowing too that the movie is described as like semi-autobiographical and that Sheridan wrote it with his daughters Kirsten and Naomi and I think that adds to the feeling of authenticity that the viewers get when they watch in America and um, the movie's nominated for three Oscars best screenplay best actress for Morton and best supporting actor for Hanzu and I think while the part of Matteo is no doubt one of Hanzu's more significant roles in Hollywood you do really feel him through his performance bulking out at a, ca- a character that I think feels a tad underdeveloped otherwise because hmm. um, when the Sullivan family first move into the tenement there is a guy who um, we don't see because he's holed up in his apartment with a sign over his door saying keep away who just keeps screaming and one of the daughters is like is this a haunted house um this screaming man is later revealed to be Matteo and um Sharon will cut between the Sullivan family like talking loudly playing laughing around normal family stuff to Matteo in his apartment where he seems to be having um what did Katie say in the the Mia Goth episode of the show a menti B menti B <laughs> um he, he's like shouting and like stabbing his paintings he just seems to be going through it right yeah however Halloween rolls around and the girls want to go trick or treating and Johnny is like the dad is like, is that like help the Halloween party? And one of the kids is like, you don't ask for help in America. You demand a trick or treat. You don't ask, you threaten, <laughs> uh, which is funny. And Sarah's like, you can't threaten on our street. But she's like, you can do it in the tenement. Um, so that's how they meet Mateo. So like the kids knock at Mateo's door and he's like, go away. And he's like really shouting and like scary. But these kids are persistent and tenacious, you know, like they won't be dissuaded. Mm. And Mateo goes to the door, like ready to like scare the shite out of them. But when he opens the door he sees there these like two cute kids and it's like his rage just melts away mm. and they, they break through his defenses and like he has no candy to give them so he gives them three dollars in coins and it leads to Sarah inviting Mateo over for dinner and you see this kind of more charming calmer side to Mateo they hit it off but Johnny doesn't like him at first I think because he might be a bit prejudiced but also Mateo has been screaming a lot throughout the movie and has keep away written on his door yeah. sign so he's yeah. like he does say like he gives me the heebie-jeebies <laughs> um also, Johnny starts to feel that Matteo may have a crush on Sarah. And there's this moment of kind of high emotion where he goes over to Matteo and confronts him about it and says, like, are you in love with her? And Matteo's like, no, I'm in love with you. And I'm in love with your beautiful woman. And I'm in love with your kids. And I'm in love with your unborn child. I'm even in love with your anger. I'm in love with anything that lives. And he only in that point, moment realizes something that's kind of been hinted throughout the movie is that Matteo was dying of AIDS. Right. Uh, which he got from a uh, blood transfusion. And um, spoilers though I think it's important to say from a, the Hansu performance perspective but like from that point on Mateo's health declines rapidly which is juxtaposed with Sarah becoming pregnant and having this complicated pregnancy and the emotional high point of the movie I think for me is when Ariel the younger daughter who loves E.T. like she has an E.T. toy throughout the movie we see her going to see it in the cinema mm. she asked why Mateo was sick and while bedridden like he whispers to her like come here I have a secret I'm an alien like E.T. from a different planet. My skin is too sensitive for this earth. The, the air is too hard for me. And she's like, are you going home like E.T.? And he's like, I suppose I am going home. And he's so tender in the scene and the way like, even though he's going through this horrible thing, he's trying to comfort the kid. Like it's so sad, but beautiful. And um, then Sarah's baby is born prematurely and it's touch and go if she'll survive. But Sharon cuts between like a montage of the baby waking up in hospital and kind of getting her strength 
that is cut with Matteo dying. And it's almost like there's a link between the two as if like he gave up his life so she could live. And mm. then later it's revealed that Matteo actually did help the family from beyond the grave in a more real world sense. And to be fair to the movie, there is this kind of magical realism element that runs through it about like wishes. And yeah. then there's a lot of talk in the movie about ghosts. And obviously there's a movie made by an Irish person about Irish people. A lot of talk about the big man, <laughs> God, you know. But we never really learn anything about Matteo other than stuff that impacts the Sullivans. Like we never really learn why he came to America specifically, how successful of an artist he is, what his life was like in the US before he was sick. And his parts of the movie film a lot broader than the stuff with the Sullivans where there's references to, you know, help the Halloween party and call Cannon. And obviously, you know, Sheridan is coming at this from an Irish perspective, but you can't help but feel like that if the film was made now, Hansi's character would be a bit more fleshed out. Yeah. But um, even as I'm saying that, you really do love Matteo because I think Hansi charts through his performance this unspoken change in the character where he goes from being someone who thinks of himself as being doomed mm. um, to realising, thanks to this family, this Irish family, that like, while he's still on this earth, he can find some happiness, some closure, yeah. he can do good. And um, that's obviously very impactful and led to Hanzu getting the first of his two Oscar nominations. Um, so I'd recommend people see in America and also for people to read um, Roger Ebert's review of it, particularly the last paragraph, which is just beautiful and a great synopsis of the movie strengths. So yeah, in America. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Hello, my name is Dave Coffey and I'm the host of Phoning It In, the hilarious improvised phone-in show. It's like Joe Duffy's Liveline, except we make it all up on the spot. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 episodes featuring some of the best comedy performers in the country. People like Kevin McGahern, Alison Spittle, Killian Sunderman, Shane Dan Byrne, Joanne McNally, Michael Fry, Emma Doran, Peter McGann, Hannah Mamalas, Tony Cantwell and so many more. Join me, Dave Coffey, for phoning it in right here on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I know that face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I know that face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. The Island. The Island. Lincoln Six Echo, played by Ewan McGregor, lives in a compound run by the sinister Dr. Merrick, played by Sean Bean, where he, along with his co-workers and friends Jordan Two Delta, played by Scarlett Johansson, and Mac, played by Steve Buscemi, endures a disciplined, healthy lifestyle due to the outside world being contaminated with the exception of a utopian island. One day, Lincoln finds out that he and his fellows are being bred as clones for their outside world counterparts, and that the outside world isn't infected at all. Escaping with Jordan into a world they barely know and hunted by the mercenary Albert Laurent, they must reveal the secrets of the island before he catches them. How long does she have? 48 hours, three days maximum. Tell me about Six Echo. Well, he was really the first one to question his environment, his, his whole existence here. Over the last few months, he began demonstrating unstable behaviour, and I can't account for it. I'm waiting on the result of his synaptic scan. What do they know about the outside world? Very little. We control them with the memory of a shared event, a global contamination that keeps them fearful of going outside. The island is the one thing that gives them hope, gives them purpose. Everything we expose them to, their programs, their cartoons, books, the games they play, are designed to manage aggression and reinforce simple social skills. To avoid obvious complications, they aren't imprinted with an awareness of sex. We find it simpler to eliminate the drive altogether. In a very real sense, they're like children. Yeah, one of Michael Bay's kind of weirder ones, you know? In that it's like before 
Transformers, but after everything else. Mm. Yeah. Or after like The Rock and stuff like that. Um, He's just a weird dude to be given this sort of... um, Logan's Run-esque mm. movie. Yeah. Because he's so much more interested in like the action and the car chases and the shootouts. Yeah. And yeah. I think the movie is way more better when they're actually in the facility than when they leave it. Yeah, it is strange seeing all this like sci-fi clone body horror stuff shot through Michael Bay is like often hazy kind of sunburnt style I actually kind of like that element of it because like I'm I'm watching Silo on Apple TV and Mm -hmm. like the apocalypse in that show like it's set in kind of a similar sort of base and it's so dingy and grimy and I sort of like how beautiful everything in the island looks and like idyllic yeah, it is. It is really funny how that everyone wears tracksuits, which are unbranded, but the shoes they wear are Puma. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and yeah, so it's, it's like a great concept, but one that seems like it's been forgotten in the wake of the, like the money hoovering projects Bay has done since, like the first five Transformers films. And its action sequences are intense and chaotic, and often feel like a test run for the citywide chaos Michael Bay would create in his Transformers movies. And like many claim, many people claim that Michael Bay is like an evil fascist devoted to the mass murder of innocent civilians and the glorification of American military might in his movies. Mm. And if that's true, then why is he making movies about clones bred so that the richest of the rich can be immortal? Not to mention the the consistent theme in his movies of American soldiers screwed over and left behind by the country they serve and then left in free fall by the systems designed to support them once they're back home. You know, it's a... I just think he likes no, you Bayhem. Also, yeah, that's, that's probably <laughs> that's true. All it is. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's not that deep. Maybe yeah. it's not that deep. But then, you know, he ju- he probably if he if he was all about Bayhem, he'd just pick scripts that were like that. Mm. He ju- he'd be making he'd be happy making DTV action on a on a high budget. That's true. Which I is suppose. not this. No, it is six underground, but it's not this <laughs> six underground. Yeah, I know. I I want to kind of touch on this when it, when it, how it relates to the Albert character. Yeah, but, yeah. And that, that's just to say that I think he's a more complex filmmaker than people give him credit for. Yeah, ambulance is testament to that, and we talked about that in our best of list last year. Um, Pain and gain. Pain and gain, exactly. Yeah, and for, like for instance, the island is only four years after nine eleven. Predicts sort of a future where America is like this militarized surveillance state that treats treats the bodies of its people as either products or cannon fodder. And on the other so- on the other side of that, it's an insane action film with some incredible set pieces. To the part where they plummet off a skyscraper in the middle of a giant letter or strange cool. credibility. That was cool. very cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And they crash down, and then after falling like two hundred feet from a building, and this builder is like, "Jesus must love you." Oh, that's great. <laughs> I actually think what's kind of cool about the movies was that I tend to think of Michael Bay movies as being comedic. Like obviously he's made like thirteen hours and. Um, Pearl Harbor and yeah. stuff but generally he's got a kind of funny strain throughout his movies like Ambulance is hilarious moments in it. Yeah, and it's yeah. kind of funny seeing him do one of these movies like Logan Run with jokes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Hunsu is often at the centre of these things of these like sequences at the, in, through the, throughout the first two thirds of the movie saying things like all his lines are just like go 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 or yeah. cops 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 they're just, <laughs> yeah. they're just warnings or commands he murders so many cops yeah. <laughs> So for much of the f- of the film, he often feels like a glorified kind of extra or stunt person until the third act, and I think this is another. This is just going back to like the um, this man. This man has done so much but so little. Where it's like few else can just do what he does, which is by presence alone convinces this tough as nails, no nonsense paramilitary contractor that really deep, deep, deep down has a heart of gold hidden it's, under all that. It's, like, Honestly, and criminality. hilarious how much they put on just like that, that he is to sell that twist. Yeah, and yeah. it works because he's yeah, so good. Yeah, but it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, that's true. I like the bit where Sean Bean is like, "You like Picasso, Mister Laurent?" And Sean <laughs> Holmes just goes, "No." <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think like he he has the line where that the twist where he's like, um, "I've seen and done things I'm not proud of, but some days you realize war is business." So tell me, Doctor Merrick. When did killing become a business for you? And then it's it's he like helps Jordan and Lincoln later on in the fil- at the towards the end of the film, and apparently just gives up his mercenary lifestyle. <laughs> it's me, to, I'm over him, guys. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. No, I want to talk about this. Yeah, um, and I think he, uh, in this and most other films, as too dignified to actually be the villain of the piece, except for Furious Seven, which I don't remember. Um, him in and I don't I'll, remember him yeah, either. And no. I will just say maybe he's just not suited to playing a villain. You know? Yeah, and I yeah. like that movie. That's one of the better ones, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I feel like they've all sort of been on a downward slope since five. Statham's the bad guy in that one, right? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, he's like a mercenary captain in like the first act. And okay. Then he's just kind of, you know, bye bye now. Um, and it, it is kind of strange how like 
maybe it's not strange it, it's Hollywood you know so he's just like he's from every West African nation that's true except, yeah. except Benin he's never been from Benin yeah, he's from nations near Benin in this one it's Burkina Faso isn't it I think so yeah yes. and then in like Blood Diamond he's from Sierra Leone in America, in America he's from Nigeria, Nigeria yeah. yeah so um, you know he's every West African nation cornered the, the market I guess yeah yeah yeah, no, I kind of, I pretty much agree. Like, um, I really like the first half of this movie, and then I think once McGregor and Johansson's characters escape and learn the truth about what's happening, about an hour of the way into the movie, it loses a bit of juice and devolves into a bunch of chases and standoffs. And I think in typical Michael Bay fashion, yeah, they're, they're it's really exciting and fast paced and slickly put together. But they do go on a bit, and they're very OTT, and I think they maybe overwhelm the more thoughtful sci-fi elements but the at the film's all those core train wheels drop off the truck and sm- start smashing into cars that's bits unreal that's got the juice that has got the juice um there's still enough though in the, yeah and in the second half like um Ewan McGregor acting against Ewan McGregor one of them doing an American accent one of them doing a Scottish <laughs> accent is kind of cool Johansson's really good in this yeah and yeah there's a kind of almost auteur strange or filmography where she's in a lot of movies about the nature of humanity and people undergoing this kind of rapid development of consciousness like under the skin and her and Lucy and the Ghost in the Shell remake we bought a zoo no I'm just kidding but um, <laughs> <laughs> there's something it's something very specific that she's good at um, and I think the bit where Jordan 2 Delta says to Lincoln 6 Echo after they kiss for the first time and she whispers like the island is real it's us I'm like yeah that's kind of beautiful yeah. man. <laughs> um, Kim Coates is really funny in this he's the kind of uh, cringy representative for Sean Bean Oh yeah, he's like yeah, the uh, HR guy. I yeah. read that you're from Scotland. I prefer Alan myself. I'm so, <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm a bit of a chatty Cathy. Jibber jabber, jibber jabber. Yeah, no, Hanzu. Yeah, as you mentioned, shows up at the midway point of this movie as this mercenary hired by Sean Bean's villain, Doctor Merrick. Um, and you know immediately he's going to be like the person tracking down the heroes who eventually sides with them. Sort of the Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive mm, the kind yeah. of blueprint for this. Um, enters the movie seems like a total pro kind of emotionless um, he, he's Sean Bean's kind of worried about letting him in on what's happening and he's like I'm in the business of keeping my clients confidence and yeah a lot pepper throughout the movie a lot of him getting out of helicopters and saying things like get the gear boys we're going out yeah. you know some him directing great, action you know some great low angle shots shots and there's a, people just exiting vehicles he's amazing at that do you ever see that clip from Transformers 4 where Titus Welder has um, Mark Wahlberg's daughter at gunpoint mm. and the camera is completely like looking up at him and he looks like God it's <laughs> so good but um yeah He's a lot of him directing action and like as a, this is a recurring Bayhem problem as much as I have a lot of time for Michael Bay but the action is so over the top that a lot of the time you're like well that armored monster truck just drove over that car and four people probably died <laughs> it's one of the reasons I hate Six Underground so much because there's parts of that movie where dozens of people have been killed and it cuts to Ryan Reynolds going like jokey 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 and he's doing his stick and you're like this feels hateful yeah. this is actively a crime and as, as much as we both love Ambulance a, a terrific film mm. a minor flaw of that movie is that the bank robbers in that film hijack an ambulance and an EMT so they can keep a cop alive that they shot yeah. but then a significant major cop character dies later thanks to their vehicle antics and no one talks about it <laughs> oh yeah but that's the fault of the Mexican cartel that they've that's named. look yeah. listen the, 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 the Mexican the, cartel that have strapped a minigun into a into a car <laughs> into an ambulance like, ambulance is better in that respect they, they, they kind of wrote them mm, down but yeah. still you know um and like in this movie like a lot of carnage is down to Albert and his team who at one point shoot and kill a bunch of cops mm. and 20 minutes left in the movie Albert tracks down Jordan like side sports and hands her back to Dr. Merrick's man at the compound and the camera holds in his face as he does so in this great swooping hallway shot and it's the first time in the movie that Hanzu portrays Albert as being conflicted about mm. what he's doing yeah. and um, it turns out that the real Jordan was in a car crash which is why her clone was called to the island you know the island yeah, is where they yeah. go to actually like it's actually where they're harvesting the people's organs um, however the crash was so bad the clone's organs might not even save her and when Albert learns of this from Dr. Merrick he's even more upset because like the Jordan's going to be killed for no reason yeah. and Harris still won't make any difference and he delivers this monologue you're going to kill two Star- Scarlett Johansson <laughs> yeah and he's like what a waste this monologue where he's like talking about how his father was part of the rebellion in Burkina Faso and that when he and his brothers were caught they were branded as a way to show they were less than human and he equates that to the way Dr. Merrick treats these clones as inhuman and then turns on Merrick <laughs> and decides to help Lincoln and Jordan and it's so ridiculous but that stare Hanzu gives as he lets Jordan go and the way he holds the camera when he does that monologue to Merrick where his character is basically like shut up Batty it's story time <laughs> I'm gonna give me two minutes here um, 
it makes it play for me. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, like, yeah, works. good man, yeah, Albert. You're yeah. a good guy after all. Uh-huh. Who knew? Yeah. Um, those poor bystanders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. R.I.P. Those bystanders. We hardly knew you. Yeah. Um, anyway, speaking of bystanders, Blood Diamond. Blood Diamond. <laughs> Blood Diamond. Let's do it. Ready, Diamond. Pink one. I saw you take it. You're mad. I do not know you. Liar! I saw it with my own eyes. This bit. Biggest I have ever seen. <laughs> hey! My brothers! I go give one thousand dollars to the man who cost the diamond out of this bastard. You in the case! You in the case! Where is the diamond? Where is the diamond? Do you see a diamond? Huh? You devils have taken my family, my home, and they lost everything. Here, look. What is left? What is left? If there is a diamond, then you are the one who has taken it. Liar! The man is a liar! And know your name, Solomon Vandy! You have a name! You have a family! I'm going catch them! I'm going find them! Sierra Leone, 1999. Fisherman Solomon Vandy, played by Hunsu, is captured by the rebel group Revolutionary United Front and forced to work in a diamond mine. There, he finds and hides a priceless pink diamond before he and his captor, Captain Poison, played by David Harewood, are captured by government forces. Rhodesian smuggler Danny Archer, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, frees Vandy and offers to help find Vandy's family in exchange for the stone. They disguise themselves as journalists and, with real journalist Maddie Bowen, <sighs> Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer Connelly. Do you remember she Travel diffuses even, a standoff in this movie just by being charming? By being nice. Yeah. 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 Honestly, if, if uh, Jennifer Connelly like bit her lip and raised an eyebrow at me, she, I'd do anything she wanted. Absolutely. I'd give her all my money. She's, she she's been it. taught a lot in this show because we've done Phenomena and Top Gun Maverick. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. So they travel deep into the bush with <sighs> Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> Maddie Bowen from yeah. Vital Affairs magazine. <laughs> Vital Affairs magazine. Important news yeah. magazine. <laughs> Current Affairs TV. <laughs> so they travel deep into the bush to Captain Poison's camp, pursued by the relentless Colonel Cootsy, played by Arnold Vosloo. Uh, He's really from good. The Mummy. He is really good. And it's really strange because uh, Leonardo DiCaprio puts on this insane Rhodesian accent as Danny Archer whereas so good Arnold Vosloo actually from South Africa does not sound (laughs) he sounds like he's from America it's insane (laughs) he's like he's like he's pouring dirt red dirt red soil into Leonardo DiCaprio's hand and he's like this is Africa this is where you're from and Leonardo DiCaprio's like you're right boss (laughs) it's crazy it's in blue Um, yeah Do you know what's also really funny? David Harewood in this movie is terrifying mm. as Captain Poison. Like, mm. he's really scary. And I mostly know him as Carrie's boss in Homeland, like Claire Dane's boss, where the whole time he was like, Carrie, you can't be doing this. I didn't know he had it in him, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, what do you think of Blood Diamond? Two and a half on Letterboxd. Yeah, that was harsh. I wasn't a huge fan. Yeah. Um, I think well funny is it's similar films like Glory or The Last Samurai which both were directed by the director Edward said, Zwick, Edward yeah. Zwick uh, uh, put white protagonists into stories that would be better served not necessarily without them but with them in more of a supporting role you get me? We, I we, agree we've said yeah. this about La- The True. Last Samurai before um, in our Ken Watanabe episode we wouldn't have Tom Cruise going Sake! <laughs> but, yeah sure um yeah, but we can sacrifice that. And I think each we can time sacrifice. <laughs> each time the focus is off Solomon, it's a much duller film. Um, I think it takes on too much in its attempt at telling the full story of the effect Blood Diamonds have on the people most affected by the conflict around them. I think Archer's story is interesting and so is his relationship with Kutsi, but if the film wants to practice what it preaches, there should have been more of a focus on Solomon, his son Dia, who's played by Kagiso uh, Kuipers and Maddie. Archer's story is really more suited to something like the Dolph Lundgren 80s action movie Red Scorpion and the film would be better served without a screen presence as charismatic as and distracting as DiCaprio doing his Rhodesian accent uh, maybe it would be better served by Dolph Lundgren perhaps mm. um, I think all of the elements are there but nothing in it ever really clicks its parts are good in isolation but not with each other for the most part yeah um, I think Vandy's journey from beaten down fisherman turned miner is pretty well thought out but I wish it was paced better and a bit more focused. I f- did think the third act of the this odd couple section of um, desperate but dignified fisherman and psychopathic white boy um, is quite good. Do you want to remind me of Treasure the Sarah Madre? 
Never seen it, but I'm sure it's great. Yeah. yeah John Huston. John Huston. Humphrey yeah. Bogart yeah, yeah. is kind of going crazy in the last act, and I feel like DiCaprio is channeling his energy. <laughs> and the, the movie just has about like three different endings. Um, or it feels like it does it is crazy at the last act there's a whole espionage plot that's like wrapped up in three minutes yeah yeah um, and to be honest they didn't need a lot of dialogue after like David Harewood is like you think I'm the devil but only because I've lived in hell oh it's so good yeah. and like you know if you I think there's like ten lines like that in the movie that are great <laughs> Yeah, the bit where uh, uh, Jaman Hunsu is like strips strips down in the prison cell is like screaming at Captain Poison oh, on the stretcher. So yeah. good. You've taken everything from me. I love, um, sometimes I wonder, will God ever forgive us for what we've done to each other? And then I look around and I realize God left this place a long time ago. <laughs> Jesus. You're like, yes. In America, it's bling bling. But out here, it's bling bang. <laughs> That works as a trailer line, but every time I see it, I'm like, God, he should really stop doing that accent. <laughs> I love the accent yeah. so much. Uh, I, I agree with you that um, this movie tries to maybe bite off more than it can chew, mm. but I kind of admire how much it goes for the fences. And I actually do think it's pretty an even split between Hanzu and DiCaprio's character. And it also helps me a little bit that DiCaprio is not playing an American, even if it's like an American actor. Like he's playing like a white african yeah, person. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Yeah, it just feels sort of preachy or something, you know? I feel like it would be better off, better served if there was less uh less of their less of the white people's story in it, you know? If it want if I and think maybe, if maybe they I'm wanted wrong, to make a more like tight or concise movie, mm-hmm. you would probably cut that out. Yeah. But I I, I don't even like necessarily it. I don't mean know. cut I, it. I mean just cut just cut it down a little bit. I think what I really like about this movie is that it's a um mainstream glossy thriller that is actually about stuff that's happening in the world and we used to get that a lot but it's mm, kind of yeah, fallen by yeah, the wayside we don't really and see that much anymore like I loved 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 How to Blow Up a Pipeline this year mm. which is similar in that respect but like that movie has to scrape money from various indie production companies in order to get one or two screens in the lighthouse mm, like over yeah, a week that's true yeah and yeah no I, I found Blood Diamonds really pacey it has a couple of very exciting muscular tense action set pieces it's the bit where DiCaprio's character Danny goes up to Hansi's character Solomon when Solomon's working at the hotel Danny's trying to convince him to like team up with him to get the diamond and then the town gets like raided by rebels <laughs> and there's like gunfire and bazookas going off and Danny's like you gotta make a choice now and it, it, everything's going crazy. it's so visceral and um, I think you learn a lot too though they show this movie to us in school when I was like in TY like in fourth mm. year it's like you know if you're good you'll get a little bit of blood diamond yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah they, should, they um, showed us Hotel Rwanda exactly yeah. and I think the, there's a similarity between the Jennifer Connelly character in Blood Diamond and the Wacky Phoenix character in Hotel Rwanda where it's been yeah, you know, yeah like that's the, true yeah. I, think like, the, he, I think he's probably uh, part of a better named news organization though oh do you know what it is no, if I, you could pull yeah. that that would be amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> CNN no um, regular news magazine <laughs> <laughs> but, um, guilty Watkins magazine but the whole thing of like Hanzu being like how can the West look at this and go on mm. as they do and they're like people just do you know yeah yeah um, yeah but like I probably wouldn't know much about Blood Diamonds if not for this movie I don't know much about them but like I wouldn't know about the concept of Blood Diamonds if not for this movie and also know- the Kanye West song um, Diamonds, Diamonds of Sierra Leone. Leone I know I don't own any and that's good enough for me yes mm. Because you witness, I don't think I do. Well, you witness all the atrocities that are committed and connected to Blood Diamonds in the movie, and at the end of the movie, you're in you're in London, and you see a shot of like a diamond necklace in a jewelry store, and you can't help but think like this is gross. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. good on the movie. Yeah, that's in, true. Like yeah, that's effective. Yeah. And um, I think the stuff in the movie with Captain Poison raiding villages, kidnapping children, then brainwashing them through fear and trauma and drugs, and like stoking their feelings of abandonment to turn them against their families is really fascinating mm. and upsetting. It feels true to life, and like the bits in the movie where the kids are handed the machine guns by the rebels and are going like shooting yeah. off without yeah. much safety it yeah. seems like it reminded me of like Gamora the like Italian crime film but it's even scarier because the kids are even younger and, than, yeah. than Gamora um, yeah no and I, I think all the acting in this movie is really good I actually love of the whole DiCaprio redemption arc that kind of comes in late in the movie it's <laughs> it's kind of like the island it's dropped in really late but I'm mm. actually like it feels totally earned <laughs> to yeah me. that's true because like, for most of it you don't know which way he's going to go like he, he there's a there are parts of that like section where he's traveling with um, Solomon and like if he if he could kill Solomon and how ha- and, and get the diamond he probably would mm. yeah but then the bit the bit where though where he, he's sitting down and like the blood is like going into the, mm. the dirt and it kind of mimics what Cotsy yeah, said yeah. it's like oh this is a good movie yeah. I don't know um, 
yeah, just on Hanzu in this, um, I think if like Connolly's character, Maddie, represents sort of the American perspective and DiCaprio's Danny kind of functions as sort of the wild card and mm. sort of the almost sort of Jack Sparrow-y sort of <laughs> <energy>. <laughs> um, character is like the heart of the movie. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Because he's just, he's like this just good ordinary fisherman who is his life ripped apart in the opening scenes of the movie and spends the entire rest of the film just trying to be safely reunited with his family. And a lot of the movie, he's just in like a constant state of shock because he's like not a soldier mm. of fortune like Danny. Like he doesn't know how to navigate this dangerous world he's found himself in. And um, he plays that so well. Like so we're all, like often wordlessly like there's the bit where Danny and Solomon are trying to get to the like food bank and they come across three rebels and Danny gets Solomon to pretend to be a rebel escorting a prisoner. And they do it. And the minute Danny gets like the drop, he shoots two of them mm, pretty yeah. cold heartedly. Yeah. And then as the third one runs away, he shoots him in the back. Yeah. And you can see Hansi flinch like every time gunfire goes off. And then he's like looking at the bodies in horror and then he's looking at Danny and he's like, you can tell even though nothing is being said. He's like, this is the guy I'm like aligned myself yeah, with. How, yeah. how did it end up like this? And there's a lot of moments like that in the movie where you can see him sort of silently judging Danny or making like a critical remark to Danny because like after all on top of everything he's like a white African man mm. ordering around a black African man yeah yeah and um yeah there's a bit where he calls um Solomon my boy or something and you're like Ugh. yeah he says also um a South African slang term for like like a derogatory term mm, for thing yeah, and, yeah. It, and like he punches him and mm. I didn't really know the term and I had to look it up but um and I feel in Hansi's performance, him holding back his emotions because he's constantly fighting himself in these kind of high stress situations where he can't fall apart. Mm. Um, but that that emotion bursts out at certain points. Like there's the scene where he and Captain Poison are in jail in different cells yeah. and Captain Poison is talking about the diamond he found and he says like, I'll give $1,000 to the man who cuts the diamond out of that bastard. And he wells like, you devils have taken my family, my home. I lost everything. What is left? If there is a diamond, you're the one that has taken it. Mm. Um and then obviously him and Poison meet again in the finale of the movie and it's just and he inc- fucking beats him to death with the shovel <laughs> incredibly satisfying yeah um, there's also the bit where he's like reconnected with his family at the camp about halfway through the movie yeah. but realises that his son is not there and has been kidnapped as a child soldier and it's such a euphoric moment that suddenly turns heartbreaking mm. when he realises snatched from the jaws of victory exactly yeah. D, D has been taken and he's shouting like where's my son and the people guarding the camp start beating him like mm. it, it's devastating and all the stuff with Solomon and Dia is really powerful that yeah, bit kind of yeah, made me cry true. and yeah, the movie is sprawling and has all these different threads and characters and is referencing a lot of historical events, but I think it really helps having Hanzu ground the story in a way that you're just so invested in him getting back and getting out of the scenario yeah. alive. The movie does have a really crap joke in it that I found really funny, where um, they're on their way to, um, uh, I think, the journalist camp or something, and uh, Danny's like, so you're a fisherman? Well, you catch mostly. And Solomon's fish. like, fish. <laughs> and he looks at him like he's crazy. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. <laughs> Um, uh, never back down never back down yeah an important life lesson Stephen to never back down unless you're a character no, which I, I won't <laughs> back down um, so Jake Tyler played by Sean Farris is a troubled teen um, <laughs> with, a, with a history of violence that moves from Iowa to Florida for his brother's tennis scholarship within a week Jake is beaten senseless at a party by underground MMA champion Ryan McCarthy played by Cam Gigandit. Who among us? Who, yeah, who among us hasn't been beaten senseless at an underground MMA party? Um, introduced to mixed martial arts by his friend Max, played by American Horror Stories, Evan Peters. Uh, Jake attends a gym run by Brazilian immigrant Jean Roku, played by uh, Jamon Honsu. As he reigns in his anger issues and falls for Ryan's girlfriend Baha, played by Amber Heard, Jake is pressured into fighting in the beatdown, the local underground MMA tournament, where a showdown with Ryan is inevitable. Doing nothing has consequences too. You cannot live in the past, my friend. Really? If you could go back and stop the guy who shot your brother. Don't push me. I know you would have fought that guy. I know that you, you would have done nothing. Seven years. Seven years. I've not seen my family, my friends. Then every day, like the day before, I wake up, wash my face, look myself in the mirror. Disgusted. Why not go back? I faced my father. The last time he spoke to me, he said both of his sons died that night. Oh, that's what you believe. And he was right. Have you ever seen this? 
No, never seen no, it. No, it's ba- you know that. I remember da- coming out in cinemas. Mm. You know that dance movie Step Up. Yeah, it's like this that. is basically it, but for guys that were into MMA in the late two thousands. Okay. Yeah. Um, More into Step Up, honestly. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this has a this is a film with all the hallmarks of being made sort of between 2000 and 2010, you know, sort of pre-iPhone, uh, early YouTube days. So it's got like low-rise jeans, a misunderstanding of social media, all the B-roll being sun-soaked pages of the Sports Illustrated swimwear issue, naked women kissing at a party, and the most insufferable white boys this side of a mid-2000s sex comedy. Um, it's a film that exists in its own world, one where illegal MMA tournaments are the most popular sporting events and viol- <laughs> violent street balls are apparently the norm. Everyone sweats so much in this film, except the girls, of course, uh, because this is a world where girls don't sweat. Sure. Um, it cuts its, there's one really weird bit where it cuts its workout training montage with um, Jake's mother, uh, played by Leslie Hope, just doing laundry. So she just it cuts between like, his brother is like on a tennis scholarship and he's like, playing tennis Jake is at a gym like lifting tractor tyres and like doing that thing with the ropes and lifting weights and stuff while Jamon Hunsu yells at him and then this poor woman is just walking around at her house picking up clothes and it's putting actually, them in the washing it's actually, machine it's actually a very deep comment yeah like, yeah well like it's gender norm maybe maybe so maybe that's maybe no it's not um, <laughs> it just shows the result of all this work at the gym and yeah, the tennis yeah, court sure and, and it's a sports movie and that comes with its own cliches and archetypes and tropes and problems and the problems are obvious with its subjectification of women wrote storytelling and bland protagonist and antagonist but every sports movie needs a Mickey or a Mr. Miyagi so Hunsu is this film's Mickey Miyagi complete with his own tragic backstory uh, so he, he and his younger brother were professional fighters in Brazil and his brother was challenged to a fight by a man who after he lost came back and shot Roqua's brother and ashamed of not being able to protect his brother Roqua fled Brazil for Florida and he's got a great line where he's like, for seven years I've woken up, washed my face, looked in the mirror and felt disgusted with myself. That's a good line. And it's maybe the only emotional part of the movie. Um, he's a good teacher character, but in the age of tradition of fight competition movies, never back down and shows that the master must sometimes learn from the student. So one of Roqua's first lessons to Jake is like control the outcome. Essentially that he can control the outcome of his actions once he has the presence of mind to focus on. The- Stop reading my notes. <laughs> uh, one of Roqua's lessons, uh. first lessons to Jake is control the outcome. Essentially that he can control the outcome of his actions once he has the presence of mind to focus on them. And initially this just applies to breathing techniques and controlling his strikes. Before the end of the film, Jake is in total control of himself, which inspires Roqua to return to Brazil, which is a pretty bland uh, ending to Roqua's arc, but um, Kuntzu is still great in the role and is, maybe part, maybe, uh, and is probably the only actor after the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp debacle is of no note left left in this film it would be great if they did never back down to where it's him in Brazil they've done four. Oh, great yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't come the back the first two and three are made by and starring I think Michael Jai White oh great and then number four is like a fight trafficking one where this woman is kidnapped and trained to be like a gladiator okay yeah. that sounds yeah. gross it does um, sound gross yeah um, yeah, no, I, I might, I don't know, you didn't really sell me on it. <laughs> um, I, I don't think I could sell anyone on it. Um, yeah, but it sounds like I, li- a, I liked it well enough. A curiosity. Yeah, 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 very much so. A Friday night movie. Have a few beers with the lads, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, have a few beers with the lads and watch Never Back Down and then never talk to the lads again. Uh, the lads can't look you in the eye anymore. <laughs> we do our own MMA. <laughs> um, yeah, just, I know that fight. I know the fight. Yeah. Help. Listen, if we ever need idea. to rebrand, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, if we need to rebrand. Anyway, um, next up for uh, Hanzu, uh, we've got Rebel Moon. Excited for mm-hmm. that? Yeah. The Netflix movie? Yeah. yeah, Netflix space opera. Why Reje- can't it just be a space opera? Rejected by put, put Star it Wars. It was meant to be a Star Wars movie. Oh, Snyder okay. pitched and then was like, I'll just make it myself. Fair enough, so, yeah. Um, a Quiet Place Day One. Um, which I wouldn't be hugely interested in. If didn't not, they already show day one in the like the first ten minutes of part two. Yes, they did. Yeah, okay. um, and I didn't What's really like point? part two that much. Me neither. But directed by Michael Cernowski, who made my beloved pig. Oh, with okay. Nicholas Cage. Right. So I'm a little well, bit. Best of luck to the Pinanyongo and Joseph Quinn. Kind of into that. Yeah. Um, Gladiator two, he's going to be in. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm quite yeah. excited for that. Yeah. I honestly, I'm a bit more excited for Napoleon now. But I think I need to see some Gladiator 2 footage before I get too amped up. Yeah, well, we'll get that once the SAG after strike. Yeah, sure. WA, WGA strike ends. Union strong, guys. Yes, I 100% agree. Um, hasn't been confirmed, but I imagine you'll be in Constantine 2 whenever it's made, right? Hopefully, yeah. yeah Have okay. a midnight. You can't waste that. He, yeah, we didn't talk about it because we talked about Constantine in our Tilda Swinton episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, Papa Midnight's one of his better characters in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, yeah, email I know the facepod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
please leave us an iTunes rating if you'd be so kind. Um, for those who want more of the pod, sign up to Heads to Plus for five euro plus tax a month, where you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes of the show. There, we'll be launching a new uh, subseries titled Stars for Rent pretty soon. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Heads of Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it, and at fortnitefrights.wordpress.com where I talk about the most influential horror movies over the last hundred years, starting with 1920. Great. You can check me out at uh, Joe.e. See you there, This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.